Today we are going to be looking in the book of John, and so if you have your Bible, we'll look in John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse number 22 in just a few moments, but the, the title of today's message is Making Room for God, and we are going to be looking at that because of what a guy named John the Baptist did concerning his relationship with Jesus, and it was just an incredibly, is a true act of humility. And humility is something that is, uh, it's a rather rare trait, kind of gets your attention whenever you see it, uh, but I think most people kind of struggle with the idea of humility, of, of letting others be first before you. I mean, just a simple example of it is, you know, just sort of your your natural response whenever maybe you're standing in line for a movie or you're at a, maybe a Fireflies game, you're trying to get something to eat, and you see somebody kind of cut in line in front of you. Now, I don't know what your reaction is. I know what my wife says. I'm just kidding. I know what mine is. Uh, my first thought is, what in the world is that person doing getting in front of me? Now, I just, you know, I don't particularly like it whenever somebody steps in front of me. And I would say just in general, that's how most people are. But whenever you see a story of humility, it, it it's kind of grabs your attention. I read a story uh, this past week about a lady. Her name was Lady Diana Cooper. She was a British socialite. Apparently, I read some stuff about her. She was quite, you know, quite the uh, quite the personality. But as she got older, her vision was not as great, and she went to a birthday party for a guy named Sir Robert Mayer. He was going to be a hundred years old, and so as she was at the party. She began to talk to this lady who came over to her, and she said, "I recognized her voice, but I couldn't quite place her." And she said, as she moved a little bit closer, I saw the necklace she was wearing, and I realized I was speaking to Queen Elizabeth. And she said, I had not done the form, the formalities with her. I'd not curtsied. She said, I immediately began to apologize. I said, I am so sorry. I didn't, I didn't recognize you. She said, I didn't recognize you without your crown. And Queen Elizabeth II said, I didn't wear my crown today because I wanted this to be a special day for Robert Mayer. I wanted all the attention to be on him. And I read that story and I thought, man, what a great story. I mean, here's a lady, she's willing to take off her crown so that she would not take the attention away from anybody else. And then I thought about me. Dude, if I can wear a crown, I mean, I'd be wearing that sucker all the time. It's like eight feet tall going, hey, y'all, look at me, I got a crown. But I mean, here's a lady, she is, she is a lady of incredible humility. And when we see humility... We're rather amazed by it. And the fact of the matter is, whenever it comes to our walk with Jesus, our walk with God, that is exactly what we are called to have. We are a people who are called to step aside and allow Jesus to step in front of us. You know, my job is not to shine brighter than anybody else. My job and the job of every other Christian is to put the spotlight on Jesus. And so today in our passage of Scripture, we're going to see the story of this guy named John the Baptist who was an excellent example of how to put the spotlight on Jesus instead of on himself. And what we're going to see him do is he shares with us through his example, through his life, of how he was how he was able to make room for God in his life. And so that's why we're going to look in John chapter 3 in verse number 22. And, and just a little background before we get to verse number 22, 
Jesus was in the city of Jerusalem, or had been in the city of Jerusalem at this time. And he ran into a guy, it was nighttime, he ran into a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus asked him a question, he basically asked him, hey, how can I, how can I live forever? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, if you're going to have eternal life, there's something that has to happen. He said, you must be born again. And then after Jesus shared this specific passage of scripture with him about being born again, which is basically where you say, I will die to myself and now I will live for Jesus. Our scripture tells us that Jesus left the city of Jerusalem and he went out into the Judean wilderness. Now the Judean wilderness is, I mean, it's not far at all from the city of Jerusalem. But the Judean wilderness is where another guy named John the Baptist, who was the cousin of Jesus, where he did a lot of his ministry. Now, this is the place where he went out, he taught people, he was out there, he was baptizing people. And so now we see that Jesus moves into John the Baptist's territory. And as he does that, we see how John reacts to it. And we see that what John wants to do in his life is John wants to step back and allow Jesus to step forward. He wanted to make sure that he was going to make room for God in his life. You know, as as I get older, that is something that, that I desire to do in my own life. I desire for God to have a bigger place in my life than what I'm presently giving him. And I think a lot of you do as well. And so the question is, well, how do we do that? I think one of the best things that we can do is look in our scripture and see how John the Baptist was able to pull it off. And so let's just take a look at that. How did, how did John make room for God in his life? Well, it begins with this. We can make room for God when, first of all, we don't see God as our competition. You can begin to make more room for God in your life when you don't see God as being a competitor of yours. Uh, in verse number 22... It says, after this, and this after Jesus has, has um, spoken to Nicodemus, it says, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them, and it says, and he baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there, and people were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. And then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification, And so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who is with you across the Jordan is baptizing. He said, and everyone is flocking to him. Okay, so this is a, this is a story about this guy named John. Now, of course, y'all know John's nickname was John the Baptist. Now, why do you think they called him John the Baptist? So this is a quiz here. What do you think? Because he went to a Baptist church, right? Now they call it John the Baptist because he was a guy who baptized people. Now I, I want to give you just a, a, a little side note here, but now we, we know he baptized people. John 3, 5 through 6 says, Then people from Jerusalem, Judea, all the vicinity of the Jordan, they're flocking to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. Okay, now here's a little side note here. The, the text says that he was baptizing in this place called Anon, A-E-N-O-N. Now, nobody knows where it is. They just know it's near the Jordan River, don't know where the town is anymore. But there was a reason why he was in this town. 
The text says, because there was a lot of water there. Now, a question I get asked a lot, so if you've seen us baptized here, you'll notice that when we baptize here, we call it, we call it baptism, but the slang is we dunk people, right? So it's like we, they go all the way under the water. Y'all, when we, when we get people wet, man, we get them wet here. Okay, so that's how we baptize. And people are like, why do y'all do it that way? The reason why we do it that way is because that's the way they did it in the Bible. So John, he said, I gotta go, pl- go to a place where they have a whole lot of water so I can baptize people. So I can them, put them all the way under. So if you've ever wondered that, that's why we do it. That's just a little side note. Has nothing to do with this message today. So anyway, John, so the point is, John is in this area. He's in the Judean wilderness. And this is where he's doing his ministry. But now we see that all of a sudden Jesus leaves Jerusalem and Jesus goes into the same area. And what does Jesus do with his disciples when he goes into the Judean wilderness? It says he was teaching the people and his disciples began to baptize. Okay, so then that's what's going on. So now we have, we have two ministers in the same area doing the same thing. Now, John's disciples, they're looking at this thinking, hey, what's going on here? I mean, this is our deal. This is our territory. This is where we work. And now, all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples are copying us. And I'm sure that there's some of them thinking, hey, this is it's John the Baptist. that He's got the nickname. Jesus did not. It's like, why are you baptizing? Because we already have somebody Who's doing it? So what we see is there, there's a little bit of jealousy that's starting to arise here. As a matter of fact, they, they went to John, and this is what they told him. They said, everyone is flocking to Jesus. So Jesus' crowds were getting bigger than theirs. And they didn't really like that. They were no longer the main draw. Their influence was dwindling. Jesus was stealing the spotlight. And I'm sure for them that was a hard thing to handle. You know, and, and what they were seeing with Jesus, they were seeing Jesus was being against them instead of being for them. And, and I think many of us sometimes look at Jesus the same way. And instead of seeing Jesus being for us, we see him being our competition. You know, and we, we think that what, he's trying to come in, he's getting into our territory, and he calls us to do stuff that we don't want to do, and we don't like that. We're like, hey, Jesus, you stay in your area, and I'll stay in mine. And so then we look into our text. We see that Jesus is moving into their area. They feel like they're doing battle with Jesus. You know, sometimes you can feel that way. I can feel that way. I, I, I look sometimes. I see Jesus calls me to forgive when people do me wrong. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I see that Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. And I think, I don't want to do that. And I start thinking, if I follow Jesus, it means then then i got to quit having fun. You know, I'm not going to enjoy life. But but here's the deal. Jesus did not come here in order to take life away from us. He came here in order that we might have life. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life said, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth, the life. He said, no man comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus came here, he did not come here in order 
to push you down. He came here in order to lift you up. And yet many times we we don't want to step back to allow Jesus to step forward because we like the attention. We like the focus to be upon us. And then we look in our text, we see Jesus' ministry. It's growing. It's starting to get bigger than John's. And then we see that the, the disciples of John, they began to get jealous. You know, jealousy, <coughs> excuse me, jealousy is a, is a pretty common emotion. You know, when you see somebody get something that you wanted, you know, you're kind of like, oh, congratulations. And then the inside you're like, why did they get it, not me? Uh, whenever you see somebody who excels at something and you think, well, I haven't excelled as much as they have, and, and then we begin to think of ways of why they're really not that good of a person. And jealousy is just, it just sort of runs rampant. Um, I, I read an interesting article about lottery winners. Now, I know that you've heard the stories before. You know, a lot of times lottery winners, like within the first five years, the percentage is huge about how many of them end up going bankrupt within the first five years. But there was another study that was done by a Canadian. He did a study with the neighbors of lottery winners. And what he discovered is that neighbors of lottery winners have a higher rate of bankruptcy than those who do not live near lottery winners. You know, what is up with that? It's like, is there like some sort of like disease that's being spread? Well, what he discovered is that when people win the lottery, typically what they do is they will spend their money. A lot of times they'll, they'll win a lottery, they'll, go, they'll buy brand new, you know, they'll buy that great big old, you know, $70,000, dollars truck like James has got. Uh, they'll go out and, uh, you know, they'll buy, uh, you know, a Sea-Doo and maybe make some improvements on their home, stuff like that. And so what happens is the neighbors will see that. You know what the neighbors do? You're jealous. And they start trying to keep up. And so they start making purchases, they start buying those new cars. James, is your neighbor a lottery winner? Um, anyway, so they, 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 they begin to make, they, they begin to make those purchases, even though they did not get that sudden influx of money, and so they go bankrupt as well. Isn't that crazy? I said that, I think, that is so strange. Jealousy is something that runs rampant. Now, the disciples of John saw Jesus as competing against them, when in fact, Jesus came here in order to complete them. Jesus didn't come here to take away from your life. He came here in order to fill your life. Now, John kept sight of that. John understood what his ministry was. You know, it had been prophesied 700 years before John was born what John's ministry was to be, and John held on to that and never lost sight of it. In Isaiah 43, it spoke of John in this way. It said, he'll be a voice of one crying out. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. John never forgot that, but his disciples did. They lost sight of what John's purpose was, which was to point people to Jesus. And they started thinking it was to point to themselves and to John. But John wanted there to be room for God in his life because he knew God God didn't come here to compete with us. He came here to complete us. So how do, we, how do we make room for God in our lives? Don't see God as your competition. How else can we make room for God in our lives? And to me, this is, I just, I heard this so much from a mom. I just threw it in here. Don't get too big for your britches. 
You want to make room for God in your life? Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Now look with me in verse number 27. John responded, as he's responding to his disciples, saying, man, we need to shut Jesus up. He said, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Now, John's disciples saw Jesus as horning in on their ministry. And they wanted, they wanted John to do something about it. They wanted to say, John, you need to go tell Jesus to back off because this is your territory. You are in charge of the Judean wilderness. You're the guy that is the baptizer. And we have all these crowds coming to us. And now Jesus is getting in on our stuff. And he's taking away from us. And John's like, guys, you've forgotten your place. You've forgotten who you are and why we are here. You know, again, John, when John, before John was born, it was prophesied to John's father what John would be doing. And I'm sure that John's father passed this information along to John. In John, or in Luke 1, 13 through 17, the angel said to John's father, he said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer's been heard. They're praying for a kid. He said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He said, he will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. That was his job. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John said, I already know what my ministry is. My ministry is to promote Jesus. My life is to promote Jesus. It is not to promote me. John was doing what God had called him to do. Now, as he did it, John was very popular before all this was going on. It says people were flocking to the Judean wilderness to hear John teach. They were flocking into the wilderness in order to be baptized. And John said, you know what? Everything that I have... Every good thing that's occurred in my life has occurred not because of who I am, but because of who God is. And God is the one who gave me this ministry. Everything that I I have is from him. And he was reminding his disciples of this. You know, a great reminder for us concerning this is James 1.17. It says, every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, when we forget that we are the creation of God and that God is the one who has given us gifts, that God is the one who has blessed us and we are operating, we think that everything we have is because of us and our intellect and how smart we are and we start operating in our own power, y'all, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to get in trouble whenever we start operating in our power instead of God's. That was what was going on with John the Baptist's disciples. They were getting ready to start operating in their power, and John's like, you can't do that, or we're not going to have any power. Whenever we do that, y'all, this arrogance can infiltrate into our lives when we think so much of ourselves more than others. Uh, There's a guy named Bill Hillman who only had one job whenever he went to Pamplona, Spain. He was going to run with the bulls, his one job was don't get hurt. Now, the reason why he's 32 years old, the reason why he had written an e-book called How to Survive Pamplona. 
Now, in the book, he wrote about what kind of tennis shoes you should wear so that whenever you're running, you know, how, how you can have good traction. He even pointed out the route you're supposed to take if you're a beginner so that you have less likely of a chance of being run over by one of the bulls. So as you can imagine, he went to Pamplona very full of confidence. Well, guess what happened to him? He was running, and he tripped and fell, and a big old bull gored him right through the thigh. I'm sure he was thinking, well, there goes my book sales, you know, right down the tubes there. Uh, but that's, that's what happens. You know, whenever, whenever you get overconfident in you, yourself, your abilities, there is a bull right around the corner waiting to gore you. And let me tell you something, that, that happens to us as believers as well. You know, as believers, it's very easy to get really caught up in ourselves, say, yeah, this, this Christian thing, I got this. I even wrote a book about it. I know how to live. I know what I'm supposed to do. And yet, whenever we do that, well, that is the time when we generally trip up and fall and get in trouble. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 has a word for us that's very good. It says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. You might say, well, that might be true for like guys like John the Baptist, but that's not going to be true for somebody like me. Uh, that, then get ready to fall. Let me tell you something. Every good thing that you have, every blessing that's come into your life has come from God. Don't ever get too big for yourself that you don't understand that. You want to make, good, uh, make room for God in your life? Give credit where credit's due. You think, think of the blessings and the goodness that you have in your life. Now think of the ways that you've been blessed in your life, with your family, with your job, with your health, with your friendships, the country that you live in. Go through all the blessings that you have, and here's what I'd encourage you to do. Tell God, thank you. Tell him thank you. I, I believe that whenever we have a thankful spirit, we recognize that what we have is a gift from God then that helps us keep the spotlight on him instead of ourselves. So how can I make room for God in my life? What are some of the things that I can do? Well, first of all, don't see God as your competition. Don't, don't get too big for your britches. And then here's the last one. Put the spotlight on him. Put the spotlight on God. Verses 28 through 30. And 30 is really just a, it's a powerful verse to me. But, but here's what we're told. It says, and this, John said, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase. John said, but I must decrease. Now, John uses some imagery here that meant a whole lot to the Jewish people. He used the imagery of a wedding, the bridegroom. The bridegroom and the bride. Now, he did that, and that meant a lot to the Jewish people because the Jewish people saw themselves as being God's bride. God had made a marriage covenant with the Jewish people. You know, He said, these are my people. The Jewish people are the apple of God's eye. So they saw their relationship with God as a marriage covenant. And this comes from Ezekiel 16.8. One of them says, then I passed by you. God said, I passed by you and I saw you 
and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. And God said, and I pledged myself to you, and I entered into a covenant with you. God said, you became mine. So that, that's why John used the imagery of, of Jesus being the bridegroom. He is the groom. John said, Jesus is the groom, and he said, and I am the best man. Now, there is a difference between the groom and the best man. You know, the groom's job is to get married, right, to the bride. The best man's job, and I actually, you can actually Google job of the best man, so if you're getting ready to be a best man, it will tell you what you're to do. Here's what, this is what it says. Best man, he is to give a toast at a wedding. He is to, uh, he plans the bachelor party. So, so if you plan the bachelor party, it's going to be godly. So it's going to be a bachelor party. Um, he is the guy who ha- takes care of the rings, does all those things. So what, he's trying to lighten the load for the groom. Now, if you saw a, a best man at a wedding, and the, the pastor says, you may kiss your bride, and you saw the best man slip right in front of the groom and grab the girl and give her a kiss, would you think that was weird? Um, if, if you're at the reception, and it's supposed to be the dance, you know, the dance between the, the new groom and bride, and he taps in, excuse me, and begins to dance with the bride, you're going to think, that guy has lost his mind. You know, so that guy has, he has forgotten his role and his purpose. He is the best man. He's not the groom. That's what John's saying in our text. John is saying in our text today, he's saying, guys, I know that you're jealous of what's going on, but I want to tell you something. I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. Jesus is the groom. I am the best man. That's why John said, I am not the Messiah. I am a support to Jesus. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 tells us, it says, you're to do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure. You are children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you are to shine like stars in the world. Now, as followers of Jesus, we are called to shine like stars in the world. And that word shine is interesting. The word shine there, it means reflect. We are to reflect light doesn't say you're to produce it. You're to reflect it. We are to shine like stars. We are to reflect light. What light are we supposed to be reflecting? The light of Jesus. You know, in, in science, so there's a scientific term for this. I, it, I don't remember how to pronounce it, but it, it talks about for planets, the reflectivity that they have. Um, Venus has a 65% reflectivity. It reflects 65% of its light from the sun. Um, let's see, Pluto, I think it's like 49%. Y'all need to write this down because it's coming handy for trivial pursuit. Uh, the moon's only 7% reflective. Now, as believers, we are to be 100% reflective of Jesus. The Bible does not say that you are to produce your own light because here's the deal. Guys on our own, we don't have any light. Without Jesus, we are in darkness. So the big question for us is how good of a job are we doing reflecting Jesus? You know, whenever you're being squeezed in life, whenever you feel pressure, what are you, are, what are you reflecting? Are you reflecting yourself? Or are you reflecting Jesus? 
whenever things aren't going your way and whenever somebody gets a promotion that you know you deserved, when somebody accuses you of doing something you know you did not do, how do you respond to that? Do do you respond to God by saying, God, I can't believe you would allow something like that to happen to me after all I've done for you? I've, I've done that. Let me tell you something, whenever I do that, and whenever my thinking goes in that direction, what I'm doing is I'm putting the spotlight on me and not on Jesus. I'm forgetting that this life and this world, it is not about me and my feelings and my rights. It's about Jesus. Someone once said, only the guy who isn't rowing has time to rot the boat. John's disciples, they were rocking the boat. They were busy complaining instead of rowing. Believers, we we need to do a little bit more rowing. The purpose of our lives is to shine the light on Jesus and nobody else. He's the Messiah. He is the mediator between God and man. He is our hope. He is it. Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. We need to reflect him. This life, and it's easy for me to stand here and say this, but it's true. It's living, it's the hard part. This life, it ain't about you. Not about me. It's about Jesus. And that's why I love verse number 30 when John, in complete humility, said, He must increase, but I must decrease. You want to make room for God in your life, you must decrease. How do I do that? God's not your competition. He's your completer. How do I do that? Don't forget your place. He is is the groom. You're the best man. How do I do that? You put the spotlight on him, not you. It's about him. Only Jesus can transform a life. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Only Jesus can heal and bind up those who are broken. Place your hope in him. Maybe some of you say, you know what? I need to allow Jesus to cut in line in front of me. Because I've spent way too much of my time cutting in front of others. Putting the spotlight on me. Maybe today you just simply need to talk to him and say, Jesus, I want you to step in front of me. Because this life is not about me. It's about you. Now what I'd like for, for us to do as we close our service, if, you, if you'd bow your head and close your eyes, maybe some of you just as, as believers, you just simply need to pray and say, Lord, I, I put myself in front for far too long. And I'm, I'm asking you to forgive me for that. Lord, I, I want to step back and have you step in front. And what does that mean? It means instead of going after your own individual rights, you say, Jesus, whatever the circumstance is, Lord, I pray that you'll work in it for your glory. Lord, I pray that I will respond to those who have wronged me like Christ would. 
that I would offer a spirit of forgiveness, that I would demonstrate grace, that I'd even be the first one to step up to see a relationship that has been broken, to see it restored, even if it's not my fault. It could be that there are others of you here today and it could be that it's time for you to step aside and ask Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of your life. And if you'd like to do that, why don't you just simply talk to Him and pray to Him and simply say, Jesus, I I know that I'm sinful. Forgive me. God, I turn away from my sin. I will follow you. I, I ask that you'll be the leader of my life, be my Lord and my Savior. I believe that you are risen from the dead and I will follow you.